Are either one of these any good? Wow, this is a good movie. It's pretty good. Yeah, well, the director from yesterday doesn't think so. It stinks. You sorry? You waste all our film. <laughs> it's so bad. We've had a couple of weeks of quiet, but now we are back in a big way. The Christmas holiday movie season, and boy, some good ones to talk about this week. Welcome. This is the Screening Room Podcast, and she is Hope Madden. He's George Wolf, And we are from MadWolf.com, and the Screening Room Podcast is sponsored by Marcus Crosswoods Theater. With their lovely 70-foot-wide ultra screen featuring Dolby Atmos surround sound and Dream Lounger recliners. You know, and that's good because even though this first movie we're going to talk about is a Netflix movie, this one... We just can't stress enough, man. You see it in the theater. See it on the biggest screen you can find. It's a story that chronicles a year in the life of a middle-class family in Mexico City in the early 1970s. It's Roma. You know, I love that they use that song in the trailer, uh, Pink Floyd's The Great Gig in the Sky. Sadly, it's not in the movie. No. But it evokes, in, used for the trailer, it really evokes a nice mood for... A, a, a movie that we just can't recommend more highly. It's just magnificent. It is. Uh, so Alfonso Cuaron wrote and directed it. He uh, he won the Oscar a couple of years ago for Gravity. He did E2, E2 Mama Tambien. He did one of the Harry Potter movies, the the, the one that people tend to really think was Prisoner, the most beautiful. Prisoner, Prisoner of Azkaban. Azkaban. He did Children of Men. Children of Men. Yeah. That's the big masterpiece, really. And, uh, well, this and is now. In this, my... <laughs> exactly. This one transcends all of them. And what I love about it is that it really pulls a little bit from everything. It's as intimate and personal as E2 Mama Tambien. It's as visually stunning as Gravity. You know, it's a magnificent film. It really is. And it's funny because it's all centered around some events that really, if you just take them at their core, the kind of stuff you might find in a, in a soap opera, really, or a lifetime movie, the, the things that are going on with this family. It's centered around a family, a well-to-do family in the 1970s in Mexico City. They have four children, and they also have these two live-in maids. Mm-hmm. And one of them is... Her name is Cleo. Mm-hmm. They call her different things, but uh, little nicknames. But her name is Cleo, and the movie is really through her eyes yeah. as she very quietly observes not only what's going on in this family, what's going on outside. There's some political unrest. Mm-hmm. Uh, what's going on with her personally? She mm-hmm. she comes to a crisis in her own life, and uh, some of that, like I said, can would in someone else's hands maybe be a little bit melodramatic. But as it plays out in this movie, it's you just get sucked into it, yeah. and it's it's so incredibly intimate and inviting. And the way the way he constructs it, um, I, I cannot see anyone else even coming close to winning Best Director. This is a masterwork. Cinematographer is going to be tough yes. to beat as well. Yes, uh, there are so many there are so many uh, moments, scenes in this movie where what's happening in the foreground, what's happening in the background, the way he balances the two, it's it's remarkable. And then one of the things too, it's not a comedy by any stretch of the imagination, but there are certain scenes where there is just this absurdism to them that doesn't really fit the rest of it, but at the same time is perfect. And yeah, you're you're right about the foreground and the background, and it's almost like a dance and the way they they move in concert with each other. And then you realize a lot of these takes are very long takes. So it all had to be just meticulously practiced and choreographed. choreographed, And the way everything just just moves together and flows. You can tell it's a semi 
autobiographical story. If you look back into Koran's uh, background, you'll see that it is. And you already talked about him uh, revealing some of the uh, themes from his earlier works. And there's also a real nod, a real wonderfully organic nod to the inspiration for one of his uh, bigger films right. that, that is, is really, really cool. And it's the, the visuals are just outstanding. The way the way it creates a mood and the way that to me it, it was it almost felt like you're kind of drifting underwater the way it, it just kind of enveloped you in the intimacy of this family and of the surroundings. And I think that would only that feeling would only be enhanced the bigger screen the you know the bigger screen you sit on. Not that it couldn't be appreciated on a small screen, sure. it could be, but to really appreciate the mastery of cinema. I would be afraid that I might miss something that he is saying visually if I were watching it on yeah. uh, on uh, our TV, or if I'm not paying attention, because that's the other reason to go see it in a theater is because it's dark. You're there, you mm-hmm. know, you're you're invested and you're paying attention. I mean, there's there's so much going on, but it's not one of those busy films. You you might just not pay attention to what's going on. But some of the sequences, it sets up such a such a, a mood that. When something punctures that mood, like there's one sequence of a a street band, some sort of parade, just moving, just blindly past this woman, this distraught woman in the middle of the street. Uh, And then there's another one where there's a murder in broad daylight. And things like that just puncture this serenity, and it just makes it all the more compelling. And it's one that, even though you, you... don't have a bunch of these plot points where if you were telling the plot to somebody, it might not sound that that's um, gripping. But it's one that I found myself having a hard time shaking two or three days later. You wake up and you think, oh, I'm still like in that world, you know, in that house. Uh, It's amazing. Right now, uh, the lead, Yelita Aparicio, is being, you know, bandied about a name as a very likely candidate for Best Actress mm-hmm. Oscar. You know, I would put out Marina de Tavira, who plays the mother, the mother in the yeah. household, because yeah. she She's, is just a scene stealer, that one. She is. She's great. Um, and there, you're right. There's some absurdist uh, pieces, especially when trying to park the car. <laughs> She's not a good driver. Well, not just that, but like, but like, you know, the there's a scene, uh, a Christmassy scene, and there's a Christmas carol being sung. This man kind of walks into the frame singing a Christmas carol in the most inappropriate, imaginable <laughs> circumstances, and yet it's, the, the visual is so, so starkly beautiful, and at the same time so wrong that that's, I mean, there are really absurd yeah. moments. And there's another one uh, of like a, a sort of a group, a class, I guess, of people training outside that's just absurd. Yeah. And at the same time, sort of strangely beautiful. Yeah, and then there are also very striking moments about life and death and, uh, yeah, and moving on and loss. And there's just no way... If you haven't gotten the impression already that we can uh, tell you how much we thought this movie was uh, just just a masterwork. It's the best movie I saw this year, hands down. Yeah, it is. It is our kind of a spoiler alert to our to our next podcast, which is going to be top ten of the year. But I think this is going to be number one. It's fantastic. Not only see it, see it on the biggest possible screen you can find, and that is Alfonso Cuarón's Roma. And next up is another one of the best films of the year. It's that time of year when we start getting a lot of these. In the early 18th century England, a frail Queen Anne occupies the throne and her close friend Lady Sarah governs the country in her stead. When a new servant, Abigail, arrives, her charm endears her to Sarah. It's the favorite. Dearest Queen, you are mad. 
giving me a palace. It is a monstrous extravagance, Mrs. Molly. We are at war. We won! Oh, it is not over. We must continue. Oh! Oh, I did not know that. Favour is a breeze that shifts direction all the time. Then, in an instant, you're back sleeping with a bunch of scabrous whores. You are enjoying all of this, aren't you? <laughs> oh, it is fun to be queen sometimes. My dear friend, how good to see you've returned from hell. I'm sure you shall pass through it one day. Here goes Lanthimos. Love him. Love him. He he did a movie, one of my favorites from a couple of years ago, called The Lobster. Oh, and the one I loved so much was uh, Killing of a Sacred Deer. Killing of a Sacred Deer, fantastic. He's he's one of those guys that I'm just always, if he has a project, yeah, I'm there. Absolutely. Uh, for, because I Never have, disappoints. He has never, never disappointed. And he always just has a different way of looking at things. Right. Just, just a little bit different. And in this way, he takes a period piece that has its roots in historical accuracy, mm -hmm. but makes no bones about the fact that he's playing around with, oh, yeah. with, with you know, he's taking some serious artistic license. <laughs> and that's fine because this, this movie is so enjoyable. It is so well-performed. I mean, the ensemble, especially the three, I guess you could say leads. I mean, Co-leads, I would yeah, say. They really are, are, are fantastic. The writing is great, the direction. It's just such a joy to watch unfold. And the three leads are um, Olivia Coleman, who plays Queen Anne, who is, she's one of those people that you probably would know her face. She's been in a ton of stuff, but this is the role that's finally going to get her some real uh, you know, recognition. recognition. She's always wonderful. There's never a time she hasn't been wonderful. She, a few years ago, she made a movie that no one saw called Tyrannosaur, which was just great. Uh, she has a lot of comedic and she, stuff, and she was in The Lobster, she was in the of lobster, course, yeah. yeah. Uh, but, yeah, she, oh my God, she just is so brilliant in this movie. And I think there, even though I think all the, sc the screen time among the three is, is probably pretty equal. There's Emma Stone Emma and Stone Rachel Weisz. Abigail and Rachel Weisz is Lady Sarah. I think they're pushing Olivia Coleman for Best Actress right. because these three could easily cancel each other out. Yes, uh, absolutely. They're all so... Great. I, and, I have the feeling all three will get Oscar nominations. Oh yeah, I, I don't see how they how they couldn't. And it's you know the writing. It's funny because this one Yorgos did not write. Right. Uh, and his, but the type of writing that this movie has in it is very in line with the type of writing that he has done. Bitingly funny, um, but but yet also dramatic and sometimes absurd. Yes. Yeah. There is. Um. It's it's weird to say silly. There is a silliness about this movie that you is unexpected given the the really serious nature of what is going on. It's not a spoof, it's not a satire. It, it, it there's a bit of absurdity about it, but there's also, I mean, especially toward the there is a bit of of melancholy about it as well. Oh yeah, and it's also Yorgos has I call him that. We're on first name basis. <laughs> uh, he just has a ton of fun with his shot selection. Oh my god! I and mean, the fisheye, yeah, he uses. It a, just looks amazing. He uses a lot of fisheye lens, which, you know, I've seen some people comment about it. It can throw people off, but at the same time, I think it works because you're kind of watching these people in a fishbowl yeah. a, a little bit. Yeah. And so he'll, he'll throw that in there and also have these these wide shots with these elegant, you know, this elegant royal countryside. And then you've got your inside, the, this palace, these ornate palaces. Yeah, the, the, the set design is fantastic. And I love the way it treats the, I mean, the main triangle here is between three women. And I love the way it treats the men. Oh, yeah. Because they couldn't be more dandy. Oh, and 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 needless. Yeah, and needless. The one, Nicholas uh, Holt. Holt. Yeah, he's he's one of the main guys. But they're all 
they're they're wearing so much more makeup than the women. <laughs> and of course they've got their powdered wigs oh, yeah. up to here and yeah, they're And they're racing ducks because yeah. they don't have anything really important to do actually exactly. while the while uh you know Rachel Weiss is honest to god running the country. Yeah, and it's it's kind of center, centers around the question of whether uh England is going to continue in a war or mm-hmm. not and who can get to Queen Anne and influence her in that way and then that's where the title of the favorite who Who's currying favor with whom, yeah. and and how are they doing that? And it's just, it's a fantastic sort of political struggle with intimate characters that are just impeccably performed oh and my God. written, and it's such yeah. a treat. It's Yeah, it is. It is absolutely among the very best of the year. Let's shift gears a little bit to a new animated film that comes out this week. It's the latest in the Spider-Man universe. Miles Morales becomes the Spider-Man of his reality and crosses paths with his counterparts from other dimensions to stop a threat to all reality in Spider-Man into the Spider-Verse. In your universe, there's only one Spider-Man. But there is another universe. It looks and sounds like yours, but it's not. My name's Miles Morales. Hey, kid. You're like me. How? I can teach you to be Spider-Man. How am I supposed to save the whole world? You can't think about saving the world. You have to think about saving one person. One thing I know for sure, don't do it like me. Do it like you. This was, I think, a bigger surprise. It was than a big surprise. Yeah, and maybe that's on us. I don't know, but I, I saw the posters some months ago. I thought, oh, you know, they're doing another Spider-Man, and and they they do this sometimes with the superheroes. You know, Batman has had a few animated mm-hmm. features since then, but uh, this one is just great. It, it's such a blast of color and action and fun and humor and heart, and I just flat out loved it. I I agree, a hundred percent. I thought it was engaging from from the opening scene. Funny when it needed to be, and it, and it also delivers a so, lot. Sometimes uh, very, very funny, funny yeah. yeah. <laughs> but it delivers a lot of the same sort of themes that you often find in um, cartoons that are aimed at maybe not the youngest of children, you know, about believing yourself and blah blah blah. But it does it in a way that never feels like it's pandering, never feels shoved down your throat. But it's also not subtle about it. I mean, no. if you're not understanding it, Spider-Man at the end just comes out and states it for you. Yeah. But you uh, you just 100% go with it. I but, loved every minute of this yeah, movie. And agreed. It doesn't pander. It feels very hip. Mm-hmm. It really does. It mm-hmm. feels very in the moment. And it's a the, the animation is glorious. The, the action is just totally non, nonstop. Yeah. Almost, it's, a, it's a real love letter to comic books. It is. A lot of it is structured like a comic book. And it just bursts the frames with yeah. action. Oh, my God. And it, it tells the story of, yeah, this Miles Morales. He gets a little too close to a fight between Spider-Man, this one voiced by Chris Pine, and then because of a big contraption that Kingpin is working on with uh, Doc Ock, voiced by Catherine Hahn. Always great. They get sucked into this Spider-Verse, these all, this alternate universe where Miles meets up with all these other heroes. You've got another Spider-Man, voiced by Jake Johnson, You've got um, Spider-Man Noir. Oh, Nicolas Cage. Voiced by it's, Nicolas Cage. Oh, my God. The lines are just outstanding. And so he exists in like a noir film yeah, universe. he's black it's and great. white. You've got a an, an anime, a girl anime version. Right, who has this Who has this Spider-Man robot yeah. type of thing. And then you've got Spider-Ham. <laughs> Don't forget Gwen. Oh, Gwen. Gwen Stacy. Uh, she's involved. And then you've got Spider-Ham. 
a little pig <laughs> in a Spider-Man costume, and he's voiced by uh, John Mulaney. He's the best. A riot. Oh yeah, just a, a riot. So basically, we have to get all this together, and Miles will find his inner hero and how to harness it and get everybody back to their correct reality and let everything you know be normal again. And we get a little help from an Aunt May who's voiced by Lily Tomlin. Oh, who's great, too. So She's you get, great. You just, you just get it all. And it is, uh, like you said, the message is right there. It's a good one. The total climate of the movie, very diverse. I loved yeah, it. Yeah. Great diversity to the movie. And it's just incredibly fun. I mean, family, looking for a family fun film for the holidays. I think this is going to do quite well. Oh, it should. It should, yeah. And that's Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse. Also out this week is the latest from Natalie Portman. It's a film about an unusual set of circumstances bringing unexpected success to a pop star. It's called Vox Lux. So from the public's perspective, this has been a emotional few years for you. Can you tell us what audiences can expect from the new album? This is a culmination of my life's work so far. I was under a lot of stress after my accident, but that's what this show is about. It's about rebirth. So tell me, how many of you have cried yourself to sleep at night? People have been trying to take me down for years. But I won't stay down. Mom, I'm worried about you. You're worried about me. Brady Corbett. Yeah, Brady Corbett. I, I He writes and directs here. Mm -hmm. And I guess he has done one, one other, film. other feature before this. But you might mainly know him, as we did, as an actor. Mm -hmm. He's done uh, the one lead role I saw him in. He was great a few years ago. was Simon Killer. Yeah. But he's been in uh, Melancholia. Mm -hmm. He's been in Funny Games, yes. the American remake of Funny Games, yep. uh, and some other things. So you might know his face. But the point is now, he becomes a very confident, visionary filmmaker in this first, I guess, wide release uh, film of his because, boy, he has got a vision and he sees it through. He does. And, and it's an interesting one because it's really about celebrity in particular, in particular, American celebrity because it opens on that oh-so-American tradition of the school shooting. Right. And because of surviving a, a school shooting, this one, this young girl named Celeste, while she's recuperating, she and her sister, they write a song. She sings it. It becomes a healing anthem for the nation. And with the help of a strong-willed manager, played by Jude Law, and a publicist, played by Jennifer Ellie, mm -hmm. uh, she becomes a pop star. And after we follow that a little bit, it jumps ahead. It jumps ahead many years mm -hmm. and checks back in with Celeste when she... And then Natalie Portman takes over the role. And by now, she is a veteran megastar on the order of Madonna. Say somebody like that. At that point, Raffi Cassidy, who plays the young Celeste, makes a return as Celeste's daughter. Right. And and by now, like I say, she is uh, Celeste is a veteran megastar, and she's strained relationships with a lot of people around her, even with her own public. Right. And uh, Natalie Portman's performance, I'll tell you what, it's one of those you just can't take your eyes off her. Yeah. It's, it's really unlike anything she's done to date. It's a very different, really grating. It's a really compelling performance of somebody who is almost entirely outside. There is no part of what's inside her that she is sharing with you at any mm -hmm. point. And, and I think it speaks not only to sort of the debilitating possibilities of that kind of stardom, but also of somebody who survived something so traumatic and then really 
whether her song helped the nation to heal or not, this is a little girl that never got the opportunity. And so, you know, she's just surrounded herself, like built up these walls. And I think that uh, that Natalie Portman does an amazing job of bringing that to light at the end of the film. Yeah, I agree. And I think what's interesting here is is that the film has these two pillars that just intertwine as the movie goes along. You've got two very American concepts, gun violence and celebrity culture, Mm -hmm. and how they're used to prop up this movie that becomes like sort of a a, a fable of uh, American pop culture, I guess you'd say it. And I also loved how the fact uh, that when it jumps ahead in the character, then you have all this backstory, or maybe middle story, I would say, I should say, that we're not privy to, that Mm -hmm. only gets hinted at in certain things, how hurts have been you know, strain, why relationships, especially with her sister, have become so strained. And, you know, what about uh, the father? What about the daughter's father? Where is it? What's going on? And you get a little bit of this, but you basically get what it the all... The result. The result, exactly, mm-hmm. the result. And, yeah, Natalie Portman's performance is just is just all in. Yeah. It's, it's, the, the only thing I could say that it was close to was that her rap on Saturday Night Live. Remember that? <laughs> <laughs> when she's that... A drink never, and fight! I want Natalie! Yeah, I never was a role model thing, <laughs> but uh, no, she's fantastic, and you know we knew that she was. But this is—you're right. This is a very different type of role for her. She often plays characters that are very internal, that are very quiet and subdued, and this is the opposite. She's opposite. just an explosion of energy and rage, exactly. and you know, yeah. Oh, yeah. And it also features some new original songs by Sia, who you love. Oh uh, well, she's yeah, I do like her a lot. These aren't. Some of my, I would say, my favorite songs that I've heard of hers, mm-hmm. but they they fit right in, and they with with uh, this story and yeah. seem very organic to what this pop star would be singing. Mm-hmm. You know, and there's definitely a couple of a uh, couple of concert sequences, but it's a it's not 100 percent successful. I no, still... I have to be honest with you. So it, it leads to a, uh, the climax is a live show, and that live show could have been about. 10 minutes shorter for me because I'm not a fan of your pop divas. <laughs> and I think honestly, I'm t- I think honestly to truly appreciate that end of the, you, you, you need to be a fan of that type of showy spectacular mm-hmm. spectacle in, in pop music. But it's uh Natalie Portman, great performance. And also I think it really signals Brady Corbett as a, a filmmaker to really watch. I agree. Because this is a very assured confidence um, outing for yeah, his first Yeah, you may not mainstream... enjoy what he did, but he had a purpose and he fulfilled it, yeah, right? definitely right. You're definitely right. And we enjoyed Vox Lux. Next, let's go to a post-apocalyptic world where cities ride on wheels and consume each other to survive. And two people meet up in London to try to stop a conspiracy. It's called Mortal Engines. What is that? That is London. 60 minutes is all it took to bring humanity to the very brink of extinction. Mankind mobilized. A new age arose. The age of the great predator cities. Survival of the fastest. Ask him why he murdered my mother. As to Shaw, she won't stop until I'm dead. Unless you kill her first. I want them found. I've been looking for you for a long time. Your mother, she said she had found something dangerous. She was afraid of Valentine, of what he might do. The man who controls this, controls the world. She said that you could stop him. This is one of those movies that might have benefited from the lowest 
impossible expectations because every time <laughs> I saw this trailer, I would think, God, I hope I don't have to be the one to review this movie. Yeah, we weren't aware, but it's uh, a YA series of novels. Right. right? There's so four not of only them, is I it think? YA, but it's dystopian fantasy YA, which has my name nowhere near it. <laughs> Although we will say it looks good. It looks great. The problem it, comes when people open their mouths. Exactly. It does. It does. It does look good. Um, and the and the soundtrack, the score is great as well. Uh, and uh, and it's produced and co-written by Peter Jackson, also co-written by Peter Jackson's wife, Fran Walsh, who, between the two of them, wrote all the Lord of the Rings movies. And it's got a, it, it's remarkably reminiscent of a Lord of the Rings movie. It's almost like if you were to take a Lord of the Rings trilogy and... The Mad Max four films and everything from Miyazaki and just mash them together into a big pot. Especially, I thought the last Mad Max Fury Road. Yes, I thought they really had some some inspiration from the look of it. Very definitely, and also Howl's Moving Castle. Oh uh, yeah, Miyazaki's yeah, 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 yeah. Howl's Moving Castle right. might be the biggest inspiration for the visuals uh, in this film. And you know, there is some great. Stuff to steal from that big set of movies. It's just that you wind up with a, a mishmash that looks great. The dialogue is just atrocious, and they have just tried to squeeze way too much into this one film. There are so many characters that show up are completely needless. They don't have to be there at all. They serve zero purpose. Because then nothing comes of their nothing. reason for being there. Nothing like, at why all. Are they here? Exactly. And there's yeah. an entire subplot with a zombie... Which, you know what? That might have been the only part that actually would speak to me. And still, I'm thinking to myself, this entire subplot could just be excised, and this movie would be shorter and make more sense and be more enjoyable. And it does have Hugo Weaving as the uh, villain. He makes a good villain. He does. He makes a good villain. But uh, beyond that and the visuals, uh, it doesn't really have much to offer. And, uh, yeah, much, much too long. Boy, they needed to trim it. They really did. I know there's a lot in there's novels, especially there's four novels, I guess. But uh, this one is just uh, going just down. Shoved too much into more it. More of that that YA angsty territory. Mm -hmm. And even though you've got some good set pieces to look at, uh, boy, you need to turn the sound down, I guess. Yes. And one more major release this week. It's the story of a 90-year-old horticulturalist and World War II veteran who's caught transporting $3 million worth of cocaine through Michigan for a Mexican drug cartel, The Mule. Family's the most important thing. Don't do what I did. I put work in front of family. I thought it was more important to be somebody out there than the damn failure I was in my own home. I didn't deserve forgiveness. This is the last one. So help me God. This is the last one. For what it's worth, I'm sorry for everything. This is the latest from director and star Clint Eastwood, and it's based on a magazine article, a real guy, a real almost 90-year-old drug, drug runner, and it's written by the same guy who worked with um, Eastwood on Gran Torino. Mm -hmm. Which, you know, that script was a blunt instrument. Yes, it was. It really was. This one, thankfully, is not so blunt. But he still knows how to showcase the uh, the curmudgeonly old man he does. That, that Clint Eastwood has grown to become. Yeah, he does. And it works for this character because it really reminded me of, you know, just a few weeks ago we talked about the old, old man, man and the, the gun. gun. Yeah, Robert Redford. Now, that movie was much more, much lighter, much more charming. Oh, it's, yeah, it's a lighthearted romp. Yeah, but if this turns out to be the year that both of these screen icons did their last, you know, their 
last roles. If this it would or the be vehicle perfect, for it. You know? right. And I'm not, believe me, I'm not hoping any ill will toward either one of them. I'm just saying they both hinted at the fact that they may be done. Mm-hmm. These, this, just as Robert Redford's role that in that movie was perfect for him to go out on, this would be perfect for Clint Eastwood because you get the feeling it was very personal to him mm-hmm. because in the this um, Earl Stone, this character, He's gotten to the point of his life in his late 80s now where he's looking back and he's very regretful of of not being a good father, mm. you know, not including himself into his family's life. And he casts his own daughter here, mm-hmm. which he doesn't do very often. No. Allison Eastwood, she's in it. And um, it's really becomes a look at how America and Americans can become just their work. Right. And just get so tied up in their value through money mm-hmm. and they are what their jobs mm-hmm. are, you know, at the sake of other pleasures and their, you know, their personal relationships. You know, it also goes off on some weird, strange tangents. I mean, threesomes at that age. OK, <laughs> but uh, at, the, at the heart of it, it really it seems very personable, very personal story for him. Uh, it's an interesting story, too. It really is oh, because yeah. how this old man got got roped into this, although it makes perfect sense, because when they were looking for a guy, you know, who could maybe appear undetected and it doesn't it doesn't tip tap dance around the fact that yeah white privilege is a part of that oh sure because you know law enforcement just lets him skate because this is old white guy exactly you know, what, what is he doing but um it, it deals with a lot of other layers under the surface that uh that really are handled pretty darn well and a supporting turn from bradley cooper who's having a pretty good year really good year he plays <laughs> the dea agent who's who's on the the trail which is also again very reminiscent of in the old man of the gun yeah you had um casey affleck casey affleck mm-hmm. is the guy this one again this this uh, relationship between the two not as light-hearted but it it has similar themes in in that the younger man is kind of looking at the older man with a little bit of admiration. Uh, yeah, a little bit of simpatico, I yeah, guess. Yeah. Like you know, maybe me down the road, or it could be me with different choices. Right. Yeah, and Bradley Cooper. Yeah, he's he's so good, and also um, uh, Michael Pena. Uh, oh, I always yeah, love he's him. He's always good too. He he pops up. Yeah. So it's solid. It is really solid, and I I don't know if they're um, if they're pushing. I think they are. Clint Eastwood for best uh, actor, best, best actor. You know, he's certainly gotten his share of Oscar attention over the years. But uh, this is one of his best. It really is uh, directing. If you go back over the years, uh, one of his best directing jobs and all around best films uh, in quite a while. So, uh, yeah, you might want to check out The Mule. And with that, let's go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby. First up is the Equalizer 2. Um, I still am a person to this day defending all over the place the first Equalizer. Yeah. I liked it very much, Anton Fuqua. Uh, this one, not as good. Denzel, of course, he's you know he's Denzel. That's right. Uh, he's, he's so good with this character, and uh, he's good in pretty much everything. But it's, it's just not as effective as the first one was. It's still decent if you like a, a good action film. You know, it's... It's going to be decent for you, especially for a, a home viewing. But that didn't quite reach the the depths and the the excitement and the stylish violence. That's what I loved about the first Equalizer. Man, and the, vi- the villain was better. The villain was better. You're exactly right. Uh, but still decent, just not as good as e- Equalizer one. Colette also comes out this week, and uh, Kira Knightley is one of those front runners for uh, Oscar consideration, Best Actress for Colette. It's an interesting movie, but it's funny in the way that you were saying that the mule and the old man and the gun have so many parallels. Colette and another Oscar contender, The Wife, are very, very similar and yet very different films. But it's a it's a good movie. It's a great performance. 
animated movie Smallfoot is out this week. And, uh, you know, I enjoyed it, although uh, early on, it really sets a tone that it might get radical mm-hmm. in its theme, mm-hmm. uh, maybe to the point of uh, stepping out like uh, Zootopia did sure. for Disney, like really have some edgy, uh, edgy, an edgy message to it. And it backs off of that a little bit, mm. but it's still enjoyable. It's got some good voices. It's nice. LeBron James. LeBron James. <laughs> but uh, a nice story about alternate society, just like we're afraid of Bigfoot or also trying to prove the existence of Bigfoot. Well, there's a, a big community of yetis who feel the same way about us, the small-footed people. <laughs> and so, you know, it's a message about truth and about how very hard it can be to find, especially when the uh, the preponderance of fake news mm-hmm. and everything like that. So it, it's not as quite, it doesn't hit the heights that it made me think it might be going for early on, but still enjoyable mm-hmm. for a family film. Also out this week, a, a small independent called Lizzie with Chloe Savigny playing Lizzie Borden. Uh, and it's an interesting it's very interesting uh, look at it takes all of the facts of the Lizzie Borden case and makes you rethink them. The performances are very good. Kristen Stewart has another really strong supporting turn in this one. Uh, it's, it's kind of uh, an interesting spin. Also, Peppermint is out this week. Jennifer Gardner as a badass. She didn't start out that way. She's just a mom and wife whose family is wiped out by some badniks, and then she becomes a badass to take her revenge, and it's bad. Yeah. It is bad. She, I, mean, I mean, I like Jennifer Gardner. Yeah, and she does what she can with it. She really does. I mean, people forget that before she became such a sweetheart, she started out in that Alias yeah. uh, TV show, you know, kicking butt, and she certainly handles those scenes well, and I will give them credit for not having a camera that overly ogles her. So she handles it well, but it's clear they're trying to kick off a franchise. This is not a good start to kicking off a franchise at all. I think it's pretty safe to say Peppermint will not be on our top 10 of the year. (laughs) And that'll be the next time that we talk to you on the screening room. We've probably already given you a good clue as to what is going to be number one, but there's lots of other movies to talk about too. So uh, we look forward to getting together with you then. In the meantime, let us know about uh, what you thought about these movies or any of the movies coming out this holiday season. We love to keep the conversation going with you on Twitter. That's the easiest. We're at Mad Wolf. M-A-D-D-W-O-L-F. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram. That is Mad Wolf Columbus. And get our written reviews and other fun stuff, including our horror movie podcast, Fright Club, all on the main website at madwolf.com. In the meantime, if you do enjoy the Screening Room podcast, we would love to have you leave a review. Love you forever if you do that. (laughs) (laughs) Appreciate it. And uh, until next time, the Screening Room podcast is a presentation of the Columbus Radio Group and sponsored by Marcus Crosswoods Theater. We want to wish you a Merry Christmas. And until next time, she's Hope Madden. He's George Wolf. And this is the Screening Room podcast. See ya. I do wish we could chat longer, but I'm having an old friend for dinner. Bye. Okay, everybody, that's a wrap. <laughs> <laughs>